Coming up on this week's show, a load of new Evercade titles are on the way. Pokemon classics come to the snares. And we go inside the world of EA and Midway with Michael Rubinelli. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every Friday with our incredible friends at Bitmap Books. Now, if you love the genre of point-and-click adventures, reprints of that amazing book, The Art of Point-and-Click Adventure Games, is available from the 14th of this month. Now, if you haven't checked this out before, it is a gorgeous 528-page hardback coffee table book packed with the very best pixel art and classic scenes from the games that define that genre. You can check that out and the rest of their retro gaming collection right now at bitmapbooks.com. And with our friends at PCBWay. Now, if you're working on a retro project over the summer, you know they offer fully featured custom PCB prototyping with low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards. And they offer services like 3D printing and injection molding. And of course, you know that PCBWay are big supporters of the retro community. So get an instant quote right now at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 389, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the podcast that every Friday takes you inside the world of classic video games and technology, brings you up to speed on what's been happening in the world of retro from over the last seven days, and of course brings you a veteran on the show for an interview in the second half of the podcast. Basically, if you remember this sound... This is a podcast for you. You got goosebumps now, Joe? You know what? I d- slightly. I was, I was, <laughs> I love this, by the way. I love what you've been doing now for like six weeks with the sounds and stuff. It is getting harder each it's week, getting, I've got to say. Well, <laughs> I, I, I'll do you a solid, but then it kind of means I'm in on it. I was going to do you a list. Like I was thinking ah. of loads and the GameCube startup screen was one of them. And it's funny because I'm getting excited over my own like, podcast starting now like oh which one is it gonna be this week don't ruin the surprise though i think it's good that dan has them all kind of under his belt and just you know it, it, yeah this proves how nerdy i am i actually sat down when i was trying to find i thought i'll, I'll do a console startup sound ended up watching just videos of like console startup music on youtube for about 20 minutes before like oh that's a good one you, that you're amazing. gonna get a zoom of like the apple pippin startup sound yeah. and we'll just like, what? <laughs> but that is how geeky we get on this podcast anything goes in terms of retro and uh, technology as well and i did mention that we bring you a guest on the podcast as well and uh, my word have we got an amazing guest this week we cram so much into the one hour or so that we have with our guest this week michael rubinelli now we're talking you know legendary companies in retro gaming they do not come much bigger than EA and Midway, do they? No, and uh, I'm going to read Michael's titles here because he was a producer at EA, vice president of product development at Midway Games, and he was also the vice president of worldwide production at THQ. So Mm. there's some really interesting stories here. He also did some consultation for Take Two. So, um, you know, we're going to be talking about kind of how EA entered the Mega Drive. Uh, You know, they entered the kind of console world and... uh, Work with the cartridges. Also work with some interesting celebrities. There's some uh, stories of MC Hammer, and uh, you know his his. You don't get much more nineties than that. Do no, you? his his <laughs> skills on the uh, Mega Drive. But also we're going to be going into the Saturn, and we're also talking Mortal Kombat and GTA Three as well, which is really interesting. As we don't talk that much about the kind of later GTA series because it's always 
quite hard, you know, with Take Two on board and uh, the houses and all of that. That's the thing. I mean, we've obviously covered GTA One and Two quite in depth, you know, with the, the guys from DMA Design as it was at the time. Um, but you're right. I mean, and that's the thing with, with this podcast because when we started this show like eight years ago, we we always kind of have a rule in our mind that retro is kind of twenty years previous. So that would have been like you know. 1996 then but obviously that kind of changes it moves forward a bit so we're definitely interested in covering more of the kind of early to early to mid 2000s now as well aren't we so it does kind of feel like even though it blows my mind it makes me feel very old that platforms like the you know the xbox 360 are kind of considered retro now yeah. two, year, two <laughs> years off 20 years for the 360 oh, that, that is crazy yeah. so um yeah there's still plenty for us to explore so our special guest michael rubinelli you're gonna love this one he's uh, such an interesting guy with some incredible anecdotes as well so he's gonna be our special guest and he'll be coming up in around 25 minutes from now but of course first half of the podcast we bring it up to speed on what's been happening in retro from over the last week and uh, i'm looking over now at my uh my i've got to admit slightly neglected evercade because i have got one um that i haven't bought any new titles for it since i think the last collection i got was a bit my brother's collection at christmas last year i haven't got any new stuff for it recently so i'm looking at it thinking that needs a bit more love and actually it turns out that timing wise this works very well because earlier this week on monday Evercade had their showcase and basically they've lifted the lid on their plan for pretty much the next year. Yeah, this is a pretty, pretty wild. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about all the kind of games that have been announced through limited run and like they're kind of like next year's worth of releases. Um, and I think that built a lot of hype online. You know, these are all the games that are coming out. This is huge. So I think Evercade mm. have maybe taken a little bit of a, you know, leaf out of their book with doing this. Because um, I've not, like you said, I've not got an Evercade, but I've not seen much about the Evercade recently. You know, like you said, last yeah. time we probably covered it on the show was uh, the Bitmap Brothers one, um, you know, that came out over Christmas. And there has been a couple uh, this year so far, like the C64 collection and Team 17 collection. I think we did cover that one. Um mm. But yeah, they have announced a huge catalogue of games um, that are coming out from now until February 2024. They've announced their kind of like lineup. Um, so I'll run through them real quick, but there's one that I kind of want to go back to and talk about. Hopefully it's the same one you guys have spotted as well, uh, which is actually a brand new title, which I think looks yeah, really I'd, interesting. I'd, I'd just like to mention that, you know, a lot of these titles that are coming out for this are new ones and indie titles, mm. um, which, you know, the Evercade traditional a lot of the stuff is kind of emulation and um, this is showing a kind of a different approach to the Evercade, I think, especially with this, uh, you know, full title just coming out on one cart. Cause usually they come out with multi carts as well. Um, I'd just like to mention as well, Evercade evolution magazine, which is absolutely awesome. If, if you're an Evercade fan, I'm sure they're going to be covering these uh, titles as well, but yeah, go ahead, Joe. So we've got, in August, we've got the Pico Arcade Pack, as well as the Sydney Hunters Collection. But in September, Sunsoft Collection and the Amiga Collection 1. So it's the is it the Delphine Software Amiga Collection 1? Uh, yeah, Del- they're obviously, you know, games like uh, Another World. Mm. No, Delphine, wasn't it? And, yeah. Um, yeah, legendary French developer. Yeah, yeah. And then October, uh, we've got Home Computer Heroes Collection 1 as well as Full Void, which is the game that me and Ravi have just mentioned, which I'm really excited about. Well, I want to talk a bit about this Home Computer Heroes, because to me, this one looks really interesting. I mean, it's got a couple of games that, um, you know, Ravi and I, I know, were, were big fans of on the Amiga. I remember Ravi coming over my house 
probably around eight years ago now, and we were uh, sitting on my couch filming a YouTube video wearing uh, <laughs> kind of camouflage and uh, face paint like army guys when we're playing a game called uh, Tanks Furry, weren't we, or Tanks Fury? Yeah, so th- this looks like, you know, usually they have a, a compilation that's done by a certain company or done by a group. It looks like they've got together a lot of different indie titles and kind of yeah. modern titles as well that have come out. So um, you've got Attack of the Petsky Robots, which is a 8-bit guy. You've yeah. also got Bridge Strike, which is the one that you mentioned, and Tanks Fury, which were both out. Is it Tanks Fury or Furry? It also Furry. Called Fury. I think it's Furry. Fury. Yeah. Fury. It'd be Tanks Fury. Fury. Yeah. <laughs> and um, <laughs> they've also got the Farming Simulator uh, C64 edition, which is really interesting because that was packaged with uh, Farming Simulator. Uh, when they actually sold the full package. So um, mm. maybe this coming out separately, you know. They've also got a Citadel, which was an old Amiga kind of first-person shooter, but it's got a, a remake at the moment. And remonstered. It's, and it's remonstered, yes. And then they've got a Planet X2 as well, and the Sword of Lana, which um, I, I'm not familiar with those, but this does look really interesting, having this kind of um, modern indie but aimed at older systems kind of uh, setup, you know. Well, well, I think it opens them up to a new audience as well, because, I mean, you know, Tanks 4 was a great game, but, you know, obviously it was really big on the Amiga community, but opening it up to a modern system I think is very cool. Uh, anyway, there's more to come. What else we got, Joe? Uh, so in November, the Duke Nukem Collection 1 and 2. Um, really interested to see what's going to be on there mm. and what the Evercade is going to be running. Obviously, you've got the DOS games, but kind of like, after that, I'd be interested to see what the Evercade can do. Then in December, you've got Good Boy Galaxy, Witch and Wiz pack. And then I'm going to get this completely wrong. As well as that, in December, you've got the the Demons of Astaborg and Astabros package, which yeah. we were Mega Drive games. They were like new retro Mega Drive games, which we've covered before, which look really interesting. Got a Metroidvania. Very kind of Metroidvania style. kind of yeah. shovel knight look to them. They look really interesting. And then the, the next one they've announced after that so far for February uh, 2024 is just Indie Heroes Collection 3. But yeah, have you guys seen this this full void? Um, this looks really interesting that's coming out in October. Yeah, this is Evercade's first ever single game cartridge. Mm. So, I mean, we talked before that generally they release compilations. Yeah. But this looks aw- awesome. This is a, it's a cinematic 2D platformer with nods to other retro games. Like, I mean, we mentioned Another World then. Yeah. It looks very... A bit more like flashback yeah. probably to me watching this. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, <laughs> I, I my notes here, I put it looks effing wicked. Like I think this, it looks very Stranger Things, maybe a quiet place, you know, in terms of like modern films and cinema kind of thing. But then a real callback, like you say, to flashback and another world style. And I love those guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I love mean, them as well. Yeah. And it's got really stunning visuals, really stunning soundtrack. And like Ravi said earlier on, this has been made for the Evercade. So this is the first game for the Evercade that isn't emulation. It's actually running it's native, yeah, on the native hardware, uh, which I think is really cool. And maybe something, you know, if it's successful, uh, you know, maybe something they're going to kind of work towards. Uh, I think it's good that they've uh, got to this point. You know, um, mm. it, it might not be for everyone. Like I said, you know, um, these are modern titles but uh for for the older systems whereas some people collect the classic ones but you know they've they've kept the price range the same as well which is just fantastic and that's what i like about the system you know it you, you can get quite a few games for a decent price and this one this looks like a premium release to me this full void you know uh it's definitely worth it 
Yeah, I mean, these titles, I mean, you know, we'll talk about the price. The pre-orders are open now, um, 1st of August. So when this episode comes out, they are um, available to pre-order. Um, Cart's coming out in October this year, but it's only £17.99, which is such good value for. Something like this, I mean, it's coming out, you know, physically a full-colour manual. You even get an included uh, comic as well to give you a bit of a, a prologue and background on the game. Yeah, that's wicked. I, 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 You know what? It's We live in a world at the moment where stuff doesn't come with manuals let alone like full color manuals and stuff like that so it's really cool to see evercade kind of keeping that retro feeling alive if that makes sense and keeping keeping manuals alive as well which is really awesome so yeah really really looking forward to this one and uh i might have to pick an evercade up but i was looking at earlier on i was like do i get the handheld or do i get the console one (laughs) get them both get them both let's do it yeah yeah so nice to see their roadmap some uh, very exciting things on the way for uh, the next 12 months for evercade fans i'll definitely be ordering uh, that as soon as we finish this podcast because that that game looks incredible so i'll link that up if you want to check it out and of course the rest of the stories always in the show notes on your podcast app or head to our website at theretrohour.com now, I'm not in my office at the moment. If I was, I mean, I mean Ravi, have you got a lovely mechanical keyboard? Yeah, let me just type a click it. of the keys. Can you hear that? <laughs> love, love that sound. That's the sound that keeps my wife awake at like two o'clock in the morning when I'm next door, <laughs> banging away on the keyboard. It is loud. Can you yeah. imagine what the old offices were like with everybody using those <laughs> and the old computers, you know? They definitely are, you know, over the last few years, I think because of gamers, mechanical keyboards have definitely had a big resurgence. Whenever I go into like a... I was going to say PC World or Curry's as it is now. Um, they've got a big gaming section in there now. There's so many kind of neon and yeah, lo- lots of RGB lights on them and stuff. Yeah, yeah. all over them. Uh, this one looks very cool though. This is from Eight um, Bitdo. Now we've talked about them before. They they do kind of Bluetooth controllers, that kind of retro style. Um, a lot of kind of controllers they generally do, but this one is um, the first keyboard I've seen from them. But this is a Nintendo inspired mechanical keyboard. That is in the vein of the uh, the old school NES and Famicom keyboard. I really like the Famicom one. Like mm. I was like this that color scheme. Yeah, that color scheme. I thought this. I mean, the NES one. Anyway, you know, looks pretty cool. The American and uh, PAL one. That it looks cool, but that Famicom one was really selling it to me. I re- I really really like the color scheme and just kind of like just the Japanese style of it. You know, and the dials at the top and everything like that. These do look really, really cool. And so I know mechanical keyboards can be pretty expensive. But when I saw that $100 price tag, I was like, whoa, maybe I won't get that. I kind of wanted it for work. <laughs> just to kind that, of is quite, that is quite cheap for a good mechanical yeah, keyboard. And, and though, these are the smaller ones as well because they don't have the numpad on the side. Yeah. So so they're a bit smaller. But the, the it's, it's a weird kind of bridge between the computer world and the... Uh, and the kind of console world this is, you know, uh, having a console-themed keyboard on your computer. I'm not sure how I feel about it, but um, I do love the customization that comes with it. So there's these two giant buttons that you get that um, are about the size of the numpad, actually. They're just like mm. two huge buttons, um, and you can just define them to be anything. Um, but also there's a whole selection of hotkeys that you can have on the keyboard that you can fit. So maybe if you play an emulation on a system with them, you can uh, kind of assign the hotkeys. Or you can do that with, like, if you're doing some hardcore PC gaming. Yeah, and what's cool as well is, I mean, if, if you look at the layout, it's not 100% your traditional PC layout. They've got a few extra keys in there that I imagine will be very good for emulation. And I'm looking down at the, the Apple keyboard in front of me now, where you normally get the, the right control and the right alt key. 
They've actually got an A and B buttons there, haven't they? Um, that are in bold red on the, the NES-style keyboard. So that means if you're playing NES-style games via emulation, having those keys will be quite handy, I imagine. Originally, when I saw this, though, because, I mean, these are really, I mean, it doesn't look like they're off-the-shelf parts. So first I thought, I have they just kind of skinned, a, you know, a third-party keyboard from someone else? And then I thought, is it going to be a recreation of the actual... Famicom, you know, the, the family basic keyboard that came out back in the 80s. I thought, is it going to be like a version of that? It's not, though, is it? It does look quite different to that. Yeah, it, it's quite different. It's not that. But yeah. yeah, that even if it was emulated, you know, like I used to play a lot of emulation on keyboard, you know, when I was younger, a lot of Super Nintendo and that big B and A, like it's cool. I like it, but I can't imagine I'd use them. This would be, it, it, for me, this would be more just I'm an adult with adult money and I just want to get something stupid for the office at work. <laughs> it does go well with the mouse as well that they released. Um, yeah. Which, which went down quite well, which was a weird mix between computer and console. But um, at the moment, there's a lot of renders of it. And I'm wondering, is it wireless, um, which would be good? Or is it wired? And a few renders have wires and a few don't. Um, so mm. maybe it has the two options, but... A lot of them are shown with older systems, and I'm thinking, how have they got that wirelessly? Then <laughs> you know, so it might just uh, it might just differ from. The kind I've of got images. a feeling it is. Um, I've got a feeling it's wireless only. It's Bluetooth, apparently. Um, okay, I've got USB C, so I think that's only for in, in the third it, image. They've got uh, wires going in and out of it. So yeah, I mean, yeah. often with these, that's generally just to charge the keyboards ah, or data cable. Okay, yes, be, that would make sense. Um, yeah. It's got a built-in battery by the looks of it as well. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's very cool. I mean, that would look awesome on your desk. And I think, you know, obviously you can't really tell until you feel, you know, what a keyboard feels like under your fingers. But I think, you know, for, for $100 for something that's unique like this, um, and if it feels nice, I think that's pretty good value. So uh, pre-orders are available now, and that's going to be shipping uh, next week, August 10th. So I'm going to check that out. I'll put that in our show notes as well. Now, you must have been excited about this one, Joe. Now, I did mention last week on the podcast, didn't I? I incorrectly said that you were addicted to the Pokemon Go game. I was wrong about that, but you were addicted to an older Pokemon <laughs> series, weren't you? Come you, on, give me this. So, yes, I, uh, I I grew up. I'm first-gen Pokemon, you know. I was, yeah, uh, of course you are. Of course I am, of course I am. I'm, uh, I saw something the other day on Facebook, and it was like, if you can name the first 151 Pokemon, you're generally around the age of 34. And I was like, I'm 34, and I can name Mark, all 100. <laughs> I, I remember at school, we used to have a guy, and uh, uh, Jeffrey, if you're listening, and he used to sit in, in the canteen, and we'd be like, right, recite the, every Pokemon and do impressions. And he'd sit there at lunch, just like laboring <laughs> them all off and doing all the golding and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. My- and you know what, though? It's crazy because it's bigger than ever now, isn't it? My my little nephew's off to a, a Pokemon Cards Expo this weekend oh, where they do trade. Yeah, it's, it's massive at the moment, Pokemon is. And it's funny because it's like, there's a lot of people at work, you know, I still like to think I'm quite young and hip, but there's all these like 20 year olds and stuff at work. And I'm like, I remember when Pokemon came out. And I, that, all right, granddad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, that's not the story. Talk about how I, uh, how I had a love for Pokemon when I was younger. Um, the story is, is... Somebody has now. This has been done before, okay, but mm. but this is very different. And there's a 20 minute video on it, um, and this is by Below Average Gaming. And it took me a while to kind of get my head around it. So hopefully you guys can help me about out with it a little bit. But I've seen these cartridges before. So Pokemon Red, Blue, and Yellow came out on the original Game Boy, and then you got Gold and Silver version a, a year later. Now these have been ported to the Super Nintendo before for just general emulation just sticking 
emulation on a chip, stick it on a motherboard, stick it yeah. in a SNES, SNES, you know, cartridge and stick it in. So when Dan sent me this earlier today, I was like, well, why is Dan sending me this? I've seen this for years. Like, because Pokemon never got any love on the Super Nintendo. It was, you know, even though it was on the Game Boy from 96 onwards, they, they got Pokemon Stadium, Pokemon Snap and stuff like that for the N64. So SNES never got the Pokemon love. And I also associate that series with being Game Boy yeah. titles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it was. It was a Game, a Game Boy series. So it makes sense for people to port these to the uh, the Super Nintendo. But what this guy's done um, is really interesting. He hasn't just ported it to like emulation or anything like that. Um, it is actually... It, it, there's a lot of soldering and a lot of modifications involved yeah, he, in this. He's kind of ripped everything apart. So yes. he's 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 taken apart the Super Game Boy. Yeah, which is the device you use on your Super Nintendo to play Game Boy games, which you can do with the Pokemon games. But yeah, he's used the guts of a Super Game Boy and the actual Pokemon cartridges. Now he does use fake Pokemon cartridges just because he said Pokemon games are just too expensive and he doesn't want to rip, to rip apart. Yeah. You don't want to rip <laughs> yeah. apart a classic Pokemon yellow because they're like 50, 60 dollars, like 50 quid in the UK mm. and stuff. So yeah, like like you say, Ravi, he's used the actual Super Game Boy, hasn't he? Yeah, but he's gone to the level of getting the actual link in there as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is a fully functioning kind of uh, Super Game Boy cartridge and link all shoved into one tiny little case that you can then just put into a into a Super Nintendo and it just fires up, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and he's he's done this so well. I mean, essentially these are the look like Super Nintendo cartridges and he's got the colors as well. Mm. I mean, you've got the yellow one, you've got blue transparent one, red transparent one, the gold one, the silver one. I mean, they're all here and they look like these could have been commercial releases. Yeah. He's got labels printed up for them as well. So basically you've got yeah, the the Game Boy adapter and the game nicely contained within a Super Nintendo cartridge. Yes. And then like Ravi says there, I don't want to just gloss over it. It has got the link cable functionality. Mm. So it actually has the link cable of the Game Boy built into the side of the Super of the Super Nintendo cartridge. And it's seamless as well. It's not like sticking out the side or anything. He's, he's got it all no. in there. Um, and, you know, we had to use like a Dremel saw and everything to, you know, take it apart and get it in there, which I think is absolutely is crazy, but it does look really good. But essentially what that means is you can trade Pokemon over Link Cable using these mm. these Super <laughs> Nintendo cartridges as well as Battle. Now, I think that'd be, be quite funny. You know, you've got two of these cartridges plugged into your two Super Nintendos with two CRTs, and then you've got an old Game Boy Link Cable between them, and you're battling on them. So it's, it's quite a lot of effort <laughs> when you can just do it on Game Boy. But either way, very, very cool. And to see, you know, rather than just being standard emulation, to actually see kind of like physical running cartridges using actual hardware nintendo it's, it's well. kind of like making a huge 32x cart or something and yeah a the game bit. in there and then kind of sticking but the it other way in, around yeah, yeah degrading it i guess yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> the one thing i didn't realize because um when you watch this video he, he talks about he has to put a, a modification in there the super game boy clock mod board yeah. because apparently the super game boy runs quicker which is why you basically, if you have this little board in there, it fixes the clock speed and makes it the same speed as a Game Boy. And he mentions that that's one of the reasons why basically using a Super Game Boy is not acceptable in gaming tournaments. Yeah, I didn't know that either. I thought that was quite mm. interesting. Uh, yeah, 2.5%, 2.5% quicker the Super Game Boy runs Game Boy games at. Um, mm. And then he played the music from Pokemon Silver one after the other and was like, can you tell the difference? And I was like, no, not at yeah. all. And then he played yeah. them at the same time and you can you can actually really tell the difference. You're like, oh yeah, okay. One is like, I know it's only two and a half 
you know, two and a half percent quicker, but it, it sounds significantly quicker uh, when you play them at the same time. So yeah, that was an interesting little fact there, fact of the day for you. Yeah, so I imagine there is uh, quite a lot of people will be watching this video, probably including you, Joe, thinking, oh, I'd love to buy one of those, but um, it looks like he's just making them for himself, unfortunately, yeah. but it is a very cool video, so I'll link that if you want to check it out in the show notes. I just think uh, now we should have a section called Joe's Factor today. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> every week. <laughs> Starting next week. Uh, well, what are you wearing on your feet right now, Ravi? Uh, socks. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and they're not my, fancy. Uh, yeah, they're not Sonic socks or anything. I've got... um. Christmas pudding slippers on right now. Obviously, you know, perfect for middle of August. Um, nothing as cool as these, though. I feel a bit left Apple, out Apple. Oh, sorry, Joe. Go on. Let, tell us what you're wearing on your feet. I've got Apple Inc. Omega Sports Apple computer sneakers size 10.5s <laughs> on, mate. <laughs> How much did you pay for those? $50,000. Next story. Right, Let's bargain. go. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is... Um, now, these, I mean, I've got, you know, merchandise from, you know, old companies. I've got... Uh, I've got a Commodore wooden board yep. in my uh, my office. It was displayed at authorized Amiga dealers in America. You know that when when they uh, they visit the shop and give it the kind of the quality seal of approval, they'd proudly display one of those in the window. And I bought one of those New York stock of eBay about ten years ago. Um, that only cost me about twenty quid. But these are these are original Apple sneakers, as they call them, or trainers, as we call them here in the UK, that were custom made for Apple employees, and they were given away at a national sales conference in the mid-90s. So these are basically trainers with the old-school Apple rainbow logo on there. And these are currently listed on the Sotheby's website for $50,000. This is a combination yeah. of two worlds, which is expensive yeah. Apple items and trainer collectors. <laughs> well, yeah. sneakers if you're in America. But uh, There's a great YouTuber I watch called Addy Sneaker Freak, who kind of combines those worlds, retro gaming and and shoes. Like, I bet he's all over this. This is going to be like, I reckon someone like Will I Am would buy these <laughs> <Yeah>. and <laughs> go around with them. It's, it's interesting because it's kind of like an internal thing, but really it is just a kind of apple piece of clothing like I, I i remember they used to do some really nice stuff though like um the apple 2 used uh no the uh, apple macintosh the original one used to have these nice carry cases that you could get as well mm. that were all kind of official and stuff um these do there's been lots of them as well over the years i remember they did like uh, watches to mark the release of os 10 or they still do exclusive t-shirts if you like visit yeah. the, the apple center and stuff so there's still that kind of like limited range of apple stuff but but th these seem very expensive but i'm not in the trainer world uh yeah they're fifty thousand us dollars at the moment and uh even reading an article on them on the bbc they mentioned they've got a bit of yellowing on the bottom as well so um like a old mac you probably need to retro bright the bottom of them <laughs> wow to get them in perfect that, condition i'm not putting any hydrogen peroxide near anything i've paid 50 grand for i've got to say um but you do get complimentary shipping so that is quite nice of them. So saves you a couple of quid. There. I but yeah, I mean, it's these insured. Are, <laughs> yeah, these. Yeah, imagine trying to get those insured with uh, DHL or something. Not, not um, yeah, Yodel or whatever it is, just chucking it over the wall. Here's your sneakers. Well, well these are, I mean, um, looking at these, they kind of look very, you know, 90s. It's um, Omega Sports Apple computer sneakers. It's made by Omega Sports. Um, you get an alternative pair of red laces included in the box as well. It looks like it's got a little, um, I'm like... <laughs> I think it was uh, Nike Airs. You used to have that little air bubble, you know, in the heel. Oh, yeah, they do. Looks like he's got one of those as well. And yeah, it a bit I'm springy. looking down at them on my feet right now. I didn't notice that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good for your basketball I, games or whatever. Until you pointed that out, I thought they looked like old school Reeboks. 
but mm. now you've pointed Rebot pumps or something. Yeah, Rebot yeah. pumps, but now <laughs> yeah. you've pointed that out. Yeah, I can see the uh, the nineties Nikeness, Nike airs of it. You know what? That's the thing. So, I mean, we talk about retro gaming collectors. I know there definitely are, you know, sneaker collectors. Here oh, yeah. It's huge. Very expensive yeah, ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's definitely a big industry. So um, it's probably not unheard of. But yeah, just, you know, 50,000. I mean, I wear a pair of shoes out in about three months normally. So uh, yeah, definitely not something I'll be wearing around the park when I take the dog out. Uh, but if you're going to spare 50k free and uh, you want to... Wear some vintage Apple trainers slash sneakers. Uh, that's available on the Sotheby's website right now. Now, before we hop into our interview with Michael Rubinelli this week, talking about the world of EA and Midway's coming up in just a minute. Just time for one more story. Obviously, um, Indiana Jones has been everywhere again recently, thanks to the uh, the new movie, which um, I haven't seen it yet, but a lot of my friends have, who have seen it said it kind of makes up for the dreadful Crystal Skull movie that seen came out. I have just, just stayed classic. <laughs> yeah, same. I went to the cinema to see that when it came out in like 2008, and uh, yeah, I can't remember much about it, apart from it was awful. Um, the new one's meant to be a bit of a return to form, but um, obviously the video games is the topic that we're going to talk about here. And I've got to admit, I wasn't all that into the Indiana Jones games. I played some of the point-and-click adventure games back in the day, but obviously there was, um, on consoles, there was some platformers that came out, and um, particularly this one here, um, which is an unreleased version of a game that was um, released on the Super Nintendo, uh, Indiana Jones Greatest Adventures, that was apparently meant to be coming out for the Sega Mega Drive, but it got cancelled at the last minute when US Gold went out of business in 1996. But there is some uh, footage that's been uploaded to YouTube, and this looks pretty good. And what you guys think of this? Have you played any of the old school Indiana Jones? Yeah, played the point and clicks, and they're just absolutely yeah. fantastic. They're, yeah. they're amazing. But I've not played the platformers. And interesting to see this is also, uh, uh, you know, in possession of Factor Five as well, uh, who are who are a great company. Yeah, I've got the uh, the Super Nintendo one that this is a port of. Um, right, I can't remember who made it, but it was produced by JVC. You know, JVC had like randomly did a few games in the mid nineties, and I always remember thinking it was dead strange. There was a big JVC logo on the cartridge for it. <laughs> the, the company that made, made your video recording. Yeah, also yeah, I always find that really strange. But um, yeah, so you, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Super Star Wars games that came out on the Super Nintendo. You got Super Star Wars. Haven't played them, but I know. Oh, you know of them. There's the three of them based on the original trilogy. So the Indiana Jones. What was it called? The Indiana Jones Greatest Greatest Adventure. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's. It's made by the same people, same company. They just did, rather than doing three Indiana Jones games, they just put all three in one cartridge. And it, it's very underrated. I don't, I don't really see many people talk about this game. Graphically, it's absolutely fantastic for Super Nintendo. Uh, really, really, really good Mode 6 graphics. And just overall, a really, really good game. Really tough. It's very difficult. But I never knew they were going to do a port of it to the Mega Drive. And I mean, it makes sense because a lot of, you know, back then they would come out on both as as they do now. But it's interesting to see not only is this kind of like surface now, but like you say, Ravi, Factor Five have had a hold of this since 2017. And one of the one of their I think he's uh, his name's David Mameser Haywood, who's like a MAME uh, developer, put a video out in May of 2021 who has a version of it and he plays it and pretty much says, you know, I can't release this guy's like I'm gonna get into a lot of trouble. Disney owned the trademark. Yeah, Disney owned it and yeah. stuff, and yeah. Factor Five have got it. So he released footage of it, and um, graphically, I think this looks really fantastic for the Mega Drive. I don't know what does it look much different to the the Super Nintendo version. It, it's a bit more washed out than the Super Nintendo mm. version. But interestingly, in the uh, the article I'm reading here, 
um, for time extension, they say that they think it makes it look more true to the films, you know, in terms of the palette that the Mega Drive is using, you know, a lot of browns, a lot of greys and stuff like that, you know, a lot of caves and stuff. And, you know, the Indiana Jones films aren't exactly bright, colourful films, even though they've got like fantastic magical sets and everything, you know, the set in Nazi era, World War Two, and then obviously in mm. caves and temples and stuff like that. But graphically, um, yeah, it does look a little bit different. It looks a bit darker and in terms of sprite animation and stuff. I think there might it might be a little little bit less than the Super Nintendo version. Definitely, as I always say, it's got that Mega Drive twang to it. It's it's, it's, it's a late Mega Drive title as well. Yeah, as like, yeah, ninety five, ninety six. There's a lot of lot of like you know, extra tricks and development that have gone into this. It does look very impressive to me. But yeah, it would be wicked to see this come out. And it's funny because when you first sent this over, I was like, yeah, everybody knows there's an Indiana Jones game for the Mega Drive. It came out in America. It's the young Indiana Jones Chronicles game. And it's not that. It's completely, like you say, I, I got it, got this completely wrong. So this, I didn't I had no idea about this. So I would love for this to leak. Well, there have been a few prototypes over the years. Apparently, there's, there's three of them that's known to exist, and there has been, you know, some earlier footage put on YouTube. And interestingly, yeah, Factor 5, because, I mean, they, they did go away for a while, and obviously the back now, and we had Julian on the podcast when we did our Turrican episode um, about a year or two back now. Um, didn't ask him about this, unfortunately, but, you know, it might be worth finding out a bit more about it. But apparently, yeah, they've got this this third prototype that surfaced now. And from what I'm reading in the, the, the comments here as well, they did kind of approach Disney and ask if they could release it and were told no. Uh, so it doesn't look like... I mean, and the fact that they've actually told Disney that they've got it now probably means it will never see the light of day, you know. They're not going to risk putting a sneaky ROM out there, are they? Yeah, if exactly. Disney, no, it's them. Yeah. So you wouldn't want to feel the wrath of their Disney's lawyers, I imagine. So um, it is very sad that we'll probably never get to play this. But again, like you said, you know, if you are interested in checking out this game, it is available on the Super Nintendo. So there is at least that. It's not a game that you're looking at thinking, oh, I'd love to play that, but I'll never get the chance. It's just this version of it. But um, it is always interesting to see kind of what could have been. It's interesting that, you know, they're still planning on releasing Mega Drive games in 1996 because you know we're well into like the the playstation and saturn era by then weren't we you know n64 was kind mm. of on the horizon so um yeah it does look very good though so i'm going to check out that that gameplay i'll uh, link that up and of course the rest of the stories in our show notes at the retrohour.com so we had some nice comments about um pete the patron as you nicknamed him on the the podcast last week ravi uh of course pete came on uh, as a guest host and we do this occasionally and every now and then we'll invite someone from our patrons community to join us on the podcast and uh, kind of give their feedback on the news stories as well we had a few people actually asking how do i get on so if you're ever interested in joining us um of course we need to join our patrons community and i think you know we, we do talk talk about our patrons community quite a bit because it is just so important to this podcast isn't it yeah, and I think if you, if you want to join, then drop a message in uh, the patrons Discord as well, and there's a section called Coming on the Show. And, yeah, uh, yeah I, I love having an extra voice on the show as well because you hear us a lot and then getting a patron in as well. You know, you get different opinions, and uh, I think it's fantastic. You know, we did a patrons chat as well, so we do, um, you know, the After Hours podcast for the patrons as well, and we had a great patrons chat recently where we talked about some interesting subjects you know usually there's always a bit of amiga talk there always is but well, well ravi let, let's say that you, so you've joined the dark side ravi <laughs> got an atari st yeah i got an atari st and uh I've, i love the sound effects and i've <laughs> i've been um kind of exploring that so we're talking about midi as well we were talking about like tv shows that uh 
had video games in them and computer systems like Halt and Catch Fire uh, was one that we were talking about. And it's just a really nice community. And, you know, we share a lot of stuff and uh, there's a lot of people that will talk about their systems and what they've got. And then other people will add advice and uh, it's just fantastic. And it really helps the show and uh, keeps us going really. Yeah, because I mean, obviously we have running costs doing a weekly podcast, so our Patreon, I mean, it covers all that, and you know, we really appreciate that. Um, but I think, you know, for us, it is that it's that community aspect, isn't it, Joe, that we built up around it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I've said it a thousand times before, I'll say it a thousand times again. And, you know, this isn't what you want out of it. If you don't want, you know, you don't want to become our friends and stuff, then that's absolutely fine. But I have genuinely made relationships and friends from patrons on the show. And I know that can sound a bit over the top, but I love so many of the guys and, you know, have found that we don't just talk on the hangout and talk in Discord and stuff like that. You know, met some of these guys in person now, talk on Facebook, talk on text and stuff like that. Like, it's such a great community of people that, you know, that I'm not going to sit here and say that we've built. It's what the community have built. It's, it's yeah. absolutely fantastic. And the support is we're so thankful for it. So if you join us on Patreon right now, um, not only do you get the uh, the usual podcast early some weeks and get edited in time, we're also about to do an extra 10 minutes or so of news stories just for our patrons. We do that every single episode of the normal podcast. You get access to our bonus monthly podcast, if you join as a gold member or above, the After Hours, of which we've done 36 episodes. So join now, you unlock all 36 back episodes. You can check out all those. And of course, you get invited to the Hangout that's coming up at the end of the month as well. Chill with us in the Patrons Discord. We're in there all week. So really, you know, we'd love to have you as part of the Retro Hour community. And of course, we do like to induct new members into the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming. I let you guys induct the latest members into the Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame. <laughs> Who we got then, Joe? We've got Scott Gomersall and Glenn Milford who both joined us on Patreon over the last week we massively appreciate your support and if you'd like to join our wonderful patrons community all the details are at theretrohour.com so thank you so much for checking out the new section of this week's podcast of course we'll bring you up to speed on what's been happening again next Friday and make sure you stay here one of my favourite interviews that we've done in ages so much to cram in so this week's special interview with our guest talking about EA and Midway Michael Rubinelli is coming up next on the Retro Hour podcast You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest, a veteran of the industry, and we love hearing stories about the companies that we grew up playing their games, you know, companies like EA, Midway, THQ, Capcom as well, and I guess this week has worked for all of those companies on some incredible games. Let's welcome on this week's very special guest, Michael Rubinelli. How's it going, Michael? It's going great, guys. Thank you for having me on. I'm super excited to be here. Really appreciate you taking the time to do some reminiscing with us today. I mean, you mentioned before we started recording that you're very passionate about retro gaming, and I know you've got some incredible stories as well. So, I mean, let's jump right into it. I mean, one question that we always like to, to ask our guests to kind of find out their, you know, their, their geek credentials, if you like, is kind of how you originally got into video games and where did your kind of journey start there? Gosh, you know, my, my journey started... You know, when I was a kid, the Atari 2600 came out to show you how old I am. And I really wanted it. And I told my dad, I said, you know, the system's like $150 and it's a retail store that's not in service anymore in the U.S. called Sears. So they had it on sale. And I was just like totally in love with it because I was a big arcade gamer, you know, Space Invaders and kind of all those early games, you know, Asteroids and what have you. And so when I saw the Atari 2600, I thought, oh my God, arcade quality games in my house. And they weren't, but it didn't matter. It was gaming. And so he said, look, I'm going to buy it for you, but you've got to do odd jobs around the house and mow the yard in the middle of 
middle of America, which was like a hundred degrees and a ton of humidity. So it was like a real labor of love for me. And I didn't regret it for one second. So that was my first experience with extended credit. Um, credit was through my parents, but I worked all summer long, uh, but I bought the Atari 2600 up front. And, you know, Jeff Bezos has this great comment where he says, you know, you can have a job or you can have a career or you can have a calling. And to me, gaming was always a calling. And so I kind of parlayed that love of gaming, you know, the Atari 2600, the Intellivision, ColecoVision. I had all those systems and uh, kind of, you know, found my way into, uh, you know, CES in 1991, when they used to hold it in Chicago, they used to hold it twice a year, right? There's still the Las Vegas show, which is in January. But in Chicago, they used to have a summer show where, you know, all these consumer electronics groups would come together. And it was mostly, you know, TVs and, you know, car radios. But, you know, video games in the kind of the early 90s was emerging. The NES was a, a runaway success. And so it felt like this thing. And so I was nobody in the industry. I was literally a fan. And I said, I want to sneak in to the consumer electronics show. And I didn't know how to do that. So I started researching, you know, again, they didn't even have the internet, right? So I'm going on trying to figure out how to, how to, you know, get there. And I found that the Consumer Electronics Show had a headquarters in Washington, D.C., where you would send in kind of an application for a badge. And they said, you know, you have to have a company letterhead and a business card. So I went down to the local print shop and made up a company name and made up a bunch of company cards. I photocopied them and sent them in. And it was like a small registration fee, like $50 or whatever. And they sent me a badge. And oh, like, wow. Wow. <laughs> I, I wasn't incorporated. I wasn't an LLC. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't anything. I was just a fan. And so I, so I sent myself into, uh, so I went to Chicago and I got into the show. I was fully credentialed. And literally the first booth I walked into in June of 91 was Electronic Arts. They were a little small booth with four like monitors uh, you know, kind of showing Super Nintendo product. And at the time, Madden on the Genesis was out, version one, and Lakers versus Celtics on the Genesis was out, again, version one. And I said, oh my God, like it was almost like, you know, kismet, right? Like if you believe the universe is conspiring to help you, like the first booth I went to inside of Nintendo was there in their third party section. And Nintendo booth was tiny. So, I mean, it's so funny how things have changed, but um, I walked up and I met the kind of the head of of electronic arts kind of sports marketing. And they were showing the Super Nintendo version of Madden and the Super Nintendo version of Lakers versus Celtics. They said, oh my God, I love your games on the Genesis. And they said, oh, you do? I said, yeah. And I started talking about it because I was a huge fan. I was a huge, you know, Madden fan, obviously, because I, you know, I, I just love Madden so much. And we talked about it. They're like, hey, do me a favor. And the show, this is when the, the Super Electronic Show was four days. Now I think it's three days. But it was four days long. This was the first first booth I went to. The very first day, it was like 10 a.m. The show had just opened. Like I literally walked right in and saw EA. Like it was meant to be. And they said, do me a favor. And you know, walk around and look at the games and tell me what you think looks good and what doesn't look good. I'm like, oh my God. Somebody from EA cares what I think. Like I was 23. <laughs> I was gobsmacked. I'm like, oh. So I, so I brought, I had my camcorder. So I spent the next like two days filming every game, my hotel at night, making notes, you know, stack ranking these things, you know, strat- you know this is going to be great. This is going to be great. Here's a trend I see, like all these things that just came to me very organically because I had a love of gaming. And so I went back on that fourth day at the end of the day, after I had all my notes, I had all my lists, I had everything written up and I was super excited. And I went back to that same person and said, hey, you know, her name was Diane Flynn. She was, uh, had a, had an EA kind of action in sports marketing at the time, back when they kind of blended all these different genres. And I said, hey, Diane, I've, I've, I've got that those notes for I got the feedback. She goes, and you are? I'm like, I mean, like instantly, like I was like, you know, soul crushing. 
You know, yeah. I sort of thought, yeah. you know, this woman asked me to do something and she's going to remember me and I'm going to really stand out. I went there on the fourth day and she's like, I have no idea who you are. Oh, no. A valuable early lesson. <laughs> oh, very valuable lesson. So I said, oh, well, you know, on the first day, you asked me to do this and you asked me to do that. She's like, okay, yeah. Oh, c- come here, come here, come here. So she takes me back to this big glass table. I thought, oh my God, now I've really made it. You know, I, I'm, I'm big time now. I'm in this big conference room. And so I, in, in reality, it was a tiny conference room. It was a tiny table. But it felt like a big deal to me because I was like nobody from nowhere. And so I started giving her like all these notes on kind of emerging trends, you know, you know, track and field, boxing, like all these sports are starting to take foothold. And, you know, here's the action games that I saw. And this is what I think about this. And this is what I think about that. Like, she's taking furious notes. And I was like so happy. She's like, hey, you know, as a reward for this, you know, we're coming out with a new, you know, hockey game called NHL Hockey, and we're coming out with a game called Earl Weaver Baseball, both, you know, on the Genesis, you know, I'll send you a free copy. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe it. I'm getting two free games for this. This is like, in reality, I'm like, you know, you look back and you think, you know, this is nothing to them, right? But to me, I was like, oh, it was like a massive deal. And so NHL comes out. And it's now, you know, two months later and I have Diane Flynn's phone number and I call her. I'm like, oh, hey, you know, I hate to bother you. Again, I'm, I'm like, no, I'm living on the East Coast. I'm, I'm, I'm not even in the industry at all. I've, I've got a side hustle where I've taken my collection of old 8-bit Nintendo games and I put them in convenience stores and video stores around the area. This is before Blockbuster ever rented games. So I thought, you know what, if, if movies will rent, why won't games rent? So I had a couple of friends of mine that ran, you know, convenience stores and video stores. I said, see what these do. And I put out, you know, like I had a bunch of old NES games. I And she goes, dude, I can't keep these in stock. Like they're renting every day, $2 a day. I'm like, oh my God. So I went, I go get this unsecured loan, right? And it's for $1,500 just on my name. I pay the loan back in 40 days. Well, I used the loan to buy a Neo Geo. I used to buy some Genesis systems. I used to buy software. I said, I just want a side hustle that lets me buy games for free, which is all I really care about, right? Like I want to feed my gamer habit. And so I pick up like seven stores in total. And of course I use the money I'm making from, you know, this rental business again, which I spend maybe three hours a week doing. And my regular day job was like 60 hours a week. But in this three hour a week job, I, that's how I make the money to go to the CES show, to get the hotel, to rent the car, all that fun stuff. So I call her up and I say, look, I said, I haven't gotten that free copy of NHL. I, you know, here's my address. Like, have you sent it? Like, that was my main concern. She's like, oh, hey, while I got you on the phone, this other genre has been announced by this other, you know, publisher. What do you think about this? And so we spend the next 45 minutes talking about why that's a good idea or not. And I hang up and I'm being like, oh gosh, darn, I forgot to ask about my free game. So I call back again, and, you know, people at EA are like notoriously busy. It's like, it's like literally a month of phone tag. And I finally get her on the phone again. And like, so that was July. I get her on the phone again, like in like mid-September. She says, hey, this is going to sound weird, but how do you, how would you think about coming to work at EA in the marketing department? We have a role for an associate product manager, and you know nobody in our marketing group really is as passionate about games as you are. You know, I'm like they're like, so if you're in the area, you should come out and interview. I'm like, I live in North Carolina, you're in the Bay Area. Like, I'm not going to be in San Francisco anytime soon. That's just not what I do. You know, I don't have the wherewithal. I don't have the interest. I like this is just not me. I'm this 23 year old kid. She's like, okay, and then she hangs up. She calls me back like a day later and says, you know what? This is going to be weird, but we want to fly you out. I'm like, oh my God, you're kidding. Yeah, we'll put you up in a hotel. You get in on Friday, we'll interview you on Monday. And I'd never been to corporate America. I'd never been in an interview process. I'd never been anything. Like I was just this kid out of college who's entrepreneurial. I had a lot of hustle, but I did have friends in the Bay Area. So I stayed with them for the first, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night. Then Monday I went into EA to interview. Well, the EA interview process was like a gauntlet. It was like 14 people you meet with a half hour a piece for some 
instances and others, it's an hour a piece if it's your hiring manager and all that fun stuff. So I met with Bing Gore. That's the first time I had met Bing. And he talked about like, how do he's like, he looked at my resume. I had no gaming background. I was from, you know, the East coast, not anywhere with that level. They normally hire people within two hour driving kind of the distance. And they said, how did we find you? So I told him the CES story. He's like, you should really get Diane Flynn to pay you like two weeks worth of her salary. I said, why? He goes, because she gave the best CES report of anybody who went to the show that year, which is incredible. <laughs> and it was like loaded with all those great insights. Like, whoa, no kidding. <laughs> and, you know, and Bing and I have become fast friends and we still stay connected to this day. But that's, uh, and then, you know, fast forward, you know, a, a, a month later, they offered me the job. Two months into the marketing job, I realized that marketing isn't about making games, which is what my interest was. And all my friends at EA at the time were on the production side. So Scott Orr, Rich Hilleman, Michael Brooks, the guys who made NHL, the guys who made Madden, the guys who made baseball. They said, you should transition into production. And I'm like, oh, great. Okay. Like, I'll do that. Like I talked to my manager, like, yeah, I think that'd be good for you. And so they said, well, you don't know anything about production. So you have to start as a product tester, like at the very, very bottom. Like you have to take literally a $20,000 year cut and pay. And I wasn't making like a hundred grand a year. I was making like 40 grand. So basically you have to work for, you have to take half your wages and that's now where you are. You have to work your way up. And I, I had a hard time processing. How can I be worth twice as much in marketing than I am in product testing? Well, I was I, wondering, um, like, when you joined EA, um, how important was sports to EA? And uh, I know you had some involvement with a yeah. series like John Madden as well. Yeah, of um, course. How did you kind of grow your role whilst you were working there as well? Yeah, it's a great question. It's really interesting. So EA at the time was kind of split across a bunch of different kind of divisions, right? There was a Sims group, which did, you know, Abrams Battle Tank, and it did 688 Attack Sub. There was EA Kids Group, which did all the Edu software. There was, you know, the Action Group that was trying to get, like, sports really wasn't dominant. Like, EA had Populous, and it had Bullfrog, and it had, you know, Theme Hospital, and it had, you know, uh, the Syndicate. It had all these kind of non-sports games because they were in the PC business. And at the time, different products and different genres carried the company, and sports wasn't as nearly as dominant as it was. So I was just, you know this kid in a category that, you know, you know, during the football season, you know, got some traction and did well, but the other nine months of the year, it didn't. And so sports was kind of just a blip at the time. Well, once the Genesis got real commercial success and it was clear that Madden and then Lakers versus Celtics, NHL, and then ultimately golf kind of led the way in terms of selling software on this massively successful platform in the U.S., EA said, you know, let's let's triple down on that. And initially it was called the EA Sports Network. And then ESPN sent them a cease and desist letter saying, you know, we're going to sue the hell out of you. You know, you can't call it EASN. It's too much like ESPN. And there's too much confusion in brand. And your logo looks like our logo and all these things. And so that's when EA had to figure out, okay, well, what do we do? And so they said, let's partner with ESPN, but let's change our name to EA Sports. Let's rebrand it and all that fun stuff. So Sports was not nearly as important when I first started. I was employee number 700 at EA, so I was in pretty early. But sports wasn't really all that important until the Genesis took off and until it was clear that, you know, the players who were buying Genesis hardware were sports gamers, whereas people buying the Super Nintendo hardware were, were action gamers, right? So things what like, was you know, it? Yeah. What was it like when the Genesis came out then and how did EA get involved with it? Well, it was really interesting. So, you know, EA was super late on the 8-bit Nintendo. They did like Skate or Die and they did like The Immortal. They did a couple games late stage when Nintendo was dying or really kind of not surging like it wanted to be. And 
the Genesis came out and Trip was the CEO at the time and Larry Probst, who is still the chairman. In fact, he's, I think he's the CEO of the IOC, the Olympic uh, Committee here in the US. Like he's a great guy. He's a really smart guy, but he was head of sales at EA at the time. And he said to Trip, he said, look, we have to get into the cartridge business. Like, in a meaningful way. We can't just dip our toes in like we did like the end of the stage of the Nintendo 8-bit system with kind of not our frontline content. And Trip said, no, 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 no. Consoles are flash in the pan. Atari died. Nintendo's dying. Genesis, the master system didn't do very well in Europe, US or, or Japan. Like we're not going to back this horse. And Larry said, I think we should. And Trip said, under no uncertain terms, are you going to get us into the cartridge business? And so Probst went to a guy named Don Traeger, who was a producer on Lakers versus Celtics, because he had a group, a hardware group that would kind of reverse engineer hardware and build software development kits and all these things. And he said to him, he said, Don, can you port Lakers versus Celtics PC onto the Genesis? It's a similar Motorola chipset. It's the, uh, you know, 63080 chipset. Can you port it? He said, yeah, I can. No worries. And so unbeknownst to Trip, at CES that year, Larry walks in and meets with, God, I don't know if it's Toyota or Nakayama, one of the guys, whoever was running Sega Japan at the time or Sega, Sega um, Enterprise. And yeah. they said, look, you know, we don't like your third-party licensing terms. We don't like your manufacturing rates because, you know, Sega manufactured all the cartridges. We don't want to pay that. Like, there's too much kind of fat in there. There's too much margin for you. And we're taking all the development risk and dot, 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 dot. They said, we're going to manufacture our own hardware software on your hardware. We're going to put out our cartridges, our own box, our own manual, our own everything. And understand that Sega did that for everybody else at the time. And Sega said, you know, and this is a meeting of CES. Obviously, there's a TV on. There's a Sega Genesis hooked up. And, you know, so Larry's in there kind of strong-arming Sega. And Sega said, you understand, like, our hardware is proprietary. You can't work with it. You can't use it. We're not going to give you the kind of the, the SDKs and all that stuff. And like, there's no way. And Larry's like, well, look, here's the price at which we're willing to pay per cartridge and from a royalty standpoint, but we're going to do all our own manufacturing. And Sega said, you know, basically you owe pound sand because you can't make this work. And we don't care who you are and we don't care what you're doing. So Larry just looked at Traeger and he kind of gives him the nod. So Traeger stands up and takes this development cartridge, sticks it in the Genesis, boots up this gorgeous you know, title screen of Laker versus Celtics. It runs in a track mode. So you see all these signature moves like, you know, uh, the Air Jordan does the dunk from the free throw line and you know, Barkley does this really cool thing called the Gorilla Slam. Like there's all these gorgeous things happening and, you know, f- cameras are going off in the audience. It looks like this real kind of highly stylized production. And the head of Sega looks at Larry and goes, okay, when can you have this in market? <laughs> like it's that simple. They're like, whoa. And, you know, obviously then that game was hugely successful commercially. And that's really what led, you know, Larry to become, you know, CEO of EA and then ultimately chairman of the board and Trip then, you know, agreed to go on and start off, start up the 3DO company where again, you know, EA and all the VCs that backed EA backed Trip and that's how the 3DO was born. I mean, let's talk about Madden. Cause I mean, obviously it was and still is, you know, one of the, the biggest sporting titles in the world. Um, so what was your role in those? I know you worked on quite a few of those titles and, and any kind of memories that stand out for you um, when you worked on those and any major milestones that you achieved? Yeah, a ton of memories. So I start off in product testing and one of the first things it gave me was, you know, a version of uh, Madden to work with and to test. And I really just so fell in love with the game. And so I built kind of all these matrices to test, you know, kind of, you know, field goal kicking, you know, levels of certain powers of kickers and punting and all that stuff. And, 
And I, I had so much fun playing and loving the game. There was a bunch of bugs I found, though, in the original version of Mad, and I kept bringing them to the production company or to the producers, excuse me. Um, and I'm like, do you guys know these bugs, like these game-breaking bugs are in the original Mad? And they're like, no, we had no idea. I'm like, yeah, they are. So like, wow. And so like, you know, so they're sort of like, we're going to keep an eye on you. So pretty soon they took me from kind of lead tester or from tester to lead tester or from lead tester to assistant producer. So as assistant producer kind of manages and oversees the, the gold master process. Um, but the real seminal moment for me on MAD, like the thing that sticks out the most in my career by far, bar none, and it still to this day tickles me to death. So on MAD 93, which was the first version that I was, I think, the associate producer, which had a little bit of product responsibility on, like in terms of design and features and balance and all this stuff. So in the old days of the cartridge business, you would bring in the programmer like the last week or two to finish the game, like close out all the bugs and get it ready. And so it's three in the morning and we have flew in this programmer. His name was Mark Lester. We flew him in from Maine and he and I are you know, working around the clock, trying to go gold master to Sega the next day at noon. We have to have the delivery because they're going to ship the code over Japan and all that fun stuff. So it's literally three in the morning. And I'm so high on Mountain Dew. Like at that time, you just guzzled Mountain Dew nonstop so you could kind of work forever. And at some point, you crash under your desk for an hour or two and you start it all again the next day. So it's three in the morning. And he goes, you look despondent. Are you really tired? I'm like, no. He goes, I said, I'm depressed. He said, why are you depressed? He said, because pass interference is so broken. Like the offensive player can draw it on the defensive player every single time. Like it's a total exploit and players use it to win. And it really makes me upset. How do I know this? Because I played MC Hammer and he beat me in front of everybody at EA like, you know, 35 <laughs> to nothing. And I'm like, oh my God, he's using a bug and an exploit. So there's a little bit of personal, you know, animus there. Um, but it really drove home the point that we had an exploit that hadn't been addressed. And so I said to the program, I said, pass interference broken. And I was just, again, like, I didn't have any programming experience. Uh, I didn't just, I was just a guy who loved what I did. He said, well, let's take a look and see how and why that happens. And then let's see what we can do to fix it. What? He said, yeah, just tell me how it should work. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not the game designer. I'm not the executive producer. I'm not going to change pass interference. He's like, look, let, let's just see how it works. So we looked into the code. We saw what caused pass interference and we saw how the, the offensive guy could trigger it. And he said, how should it work? I said, it should work this way, this way, and this way. He's like, okay. And so we did it. We had a couple of revs back and forth. And over the next hour, and by 4 a.m., we had it tuned beautifully. And it worked well. It, it should get called when it should get called. It shouldn't get called when it shouldn't get called. It was so well balanced. And so, of course, me, I'm just like, I am stoked. And so it's 9 a.m. My, my boss's boss's boss walks in the next morning. And I said, I know we're going to go to Sega in about three hours. But I want to play the final, final, final build with you because I made a pretty interesting gameplay change. Without your approval, I know. I said, but I want to show it to you, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. He's like, okay, let's play. So we play a game and back and forth. I have a good time. And he looks at me, he goes, oh my God, you changed pass interference. And I was expecting the next words out of his mouth to be, and you're fired. <laughs> you know? And he said, tell me how it works. Tell me what you did. So I walked him through it and I said, this is how it happened. This is why it was an exploit and this is why it's a terrible user experience. I said, this is how it works now. And I said, let's try to see if we can't get it triggered unnecessarily. And by the end, like, you know, like 30 minutes later, he's like, oh, it's great. It feels great. Let's do it. So to me as a kid who has loved games all my life, to now input game design and balance changes, they're going to hack millions of players forever. Like that was such a defining moment in my journey 
that made me feel so good. And that made me realize always do things when you build games that err on the side of the consumer, right? Like that should be your default position. It shouldn't be, is this going to make you the most money? It's like, no, it's just the best user experience. And you have to have a balance there. But every time I've had a designer balance decision, like in front of me, I've always said, well, what's the most player leaning change? And that to me, you know, maddened my whole career, like that really kind of set the tone for me. Well, did you work much with um, the late John Madden himself? And, I did. and how was your relationship with him? And did he give you kind of any insights or feedback, you know, that changed the games? It was great. Yeah. You know, so, so John, you know, was surprisingly, I think a lot more involved than people realize. And he was, you know, it's like John is this behemoth of a man. He's six foot five, 310 pounds. Like he literally, when he walks in the door, like, you know it, he's got this really like just towering presence about him. Yes, he's larger than life. He's very animated, but he's just physically, he's like this really imposing figure, but he was a sweetheart of a guy. And so we used to talk to him about, you know, terms we heard in the NFL and like, we'd try to understand like, what is the thinking here? Like, what is this opposing, you know, offense versus defense? How do these things play out? And what's the balance? And when this offensive coordinator runs this package, what are they trying to do? And so he really would break down for us the the game and how all the X's and O's, so to speak, would work. And we'd do the best we possibly could to emulate that. But I will tell you the funniest story I had about John is we were doing a, a VO session for uh, the 3DO version and for the, uh, the PlayStation 1 version. And I watched, like that whole week, I watched all these tapes of John Madden, you know, giving game intros, writing them verbatim. So opening season, what is, of, of a football season, what does John Madden say? In the playoffs, what does John Madden say? In the Super Bowl, what does John Madden say? In terms of setting up the moment, right? Because we wanted this thing to feel like we're capturing the spirit of a game going in. So this is all kind of intro text. You know, hey, welcome everybody. You know, this game, dot, 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 dot. So I wrote up all these different scripts. And so we're at this VO session. I work with a guy named Gordon Bellamy, who's just this great guy. And I give John the, the VO script. He goes, who wrote this? I would never say these things. And he threw it down. I said, Bellamy wrote those, sir. I'm sorry. I said, why don't you just wing it? I'll give you a scenario and you can just, you can just ad lib it. He's like, I would never say this. I'm like, well, you actually did say this, but I didn't say that to him. But that's the beautiful thing about John. I said, okay, John. I said, here's the setup. It's opening day of the most recent season, how do you feel? Like, what, what do you say to the viewers when the camera turns on? And he would just ad lib. And it was the most beautiful and fluid thing you've ever seen. And you realize that's kind of the, the pro that he was. Like, he didn't need a script. You just give him a moment and he could speak like right off the tip, just, just go. And it was great to hear. And it was a beautiful thing to see. And you get a real appreciation for kind of here's this guy who's a football coach but he really has turned himself into this multimedia mogul and you know what good for him and good for us and a great guy and i still miss him to this day you know you mentioned then about the, the 3do version of madden as well and i mean obviously you know you said that you know trip went to form the 3do company and uh what did you think of the 3do hardware and, and the idea and was ea quite invested in the 3do as a platform at this stage yeah, EA was really invested in the 3DO. So EA was one of the biggest investors along with Kleiner Perkins, I want to say, and a couple other groups. And they really, there really was an interest in, you know, if we are a great software company with a bunch of great brands like Road Rash and PGA and all these things, like we could drive the adoption. Because if you look at kind of all the hardware at any point in time, it was the exclusive titles that really drove adoption, right? 
And so, you know, uh, you know, Nintendo had, you know, they had Zelda and they had Super Mario and they had Donkey Kong and, you know, and, you know, Microsoft has, you know, Halo and, you know, uh, Sony once upon a time, you know, Ridge Racer and Tekken was exclusive and all those things. And so there was always this whole notion of, could we get into the hardware business? And Trip had a dream to build that. And EA wanted to sponsor that not only with kind of investment dollars, but with software. And so they set up this whole group called the Advanced Technologies Group and said, let's build content exclusively for the 3DS. So as an example, my development team didn't build Madden, but the 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 advanced technology groups build Madden, but I was connected. So I was involved. I helped produce it and I helped kind of, you know, get the source code and I would help kind of get the game done. But the high school production team, which was Scott Orr's group, didn't build Madden on the 3DO, but we were we had oversight. And I think the hardware was ahead of its time. I thought that what it did really well, uh, it did well. What it didn't do well, you know, w- w- was a kind of a, a blank spot or a, was a was a gap for them. There was uh, a desire to be this real multimedia kind of, you know, photo reel or kind of full motion video kind of enhanced experiences. And the hardware just didn't have the horsepower to deliver the kind of visual fidelity that they thought they could. And the games ultimately fell, fell, fell flat. But I thought Madden was a ton of fun. I think there was a lot of... The problem with Madden was when the 3DO came out, I want to say Madden 95 was out, but because it took Madden 3DO so long to get developed, it was based on Madden 93 or 94 source code. So there wasn't feature parity between the two, which was unfortunate. Like the 3 owners like, wait, where's trading and where's you know, the playoff system and where is, you know, you know, editing players and all those things are in the current version of the Genesis. Like, wow, it's not even as fully featured as the Genesis version. That's because it wasn't based on the recent Genesis version source code because games were developed so quickly back then, but the 3D needed a longer lead time to get that kind of development content done. Did you attend any like big launches like the 3DO launch or did you go to any memorable game events? Uh, You mentioned uh, MC Hammer there. Were there any kind of (laughs) celebrities around? Well, I will tell you the funny, the funny 2.0 to the hammer story is that we fixed the, we fixed the exploit that he used to beat me in front of everybody in EA and he lived nearby in a town called Fremont, California. And so when I had that new version of Madden, I walked it, I went to his house and he was a big deal at the time. And ESPN was filming some things for ESPN too, this kind of this extreme sport. So Hammer's out riding around on his property on ATVs. They're doing skeet shooting. They're doing all these things that are not core sports. They're kind of alternative sports, which ESPN2 covered. But at his house, Deion Sanders was there. Ken Griffey Jr. was there. There's all these sports celebrities there hanging out just because, you, you know, rappers and athletes always hang out. And so I said, hey, you know, Hammer invited me. He's like, oh, I want to play the new version. I'm like, great. And so he and I played it in front of all of his boys this time. And I beat him 45 to three. And I, <laughs> I let him know about it every, he's like, I'm like, he kept trying to draw, out, the first time he tried to draw past interference as an offensive player, I go, oops, something changed. <laughs> he's like, what? And from there, it was just, it was just on, right? All the smack talking both sides. It was a ton of fun. But um, yeah, I did. So, you know, the great thing about being, you know, the person who has a lot of input or impact or responsibility on on product like Madden is like I got to go to the Super Bowl every year, and when John Madden was in town doing the games, whether it was the Oakland Coliseum or Candlestick Park at the time, I would get you know all access pass. So I'd go up in the press booth, I'd go into player locker rooms, I'd go on the sidelines to watch a football game, and it's a really 
it's a really kind of gratifying experience to be able to get that kind of access and get to do those things as a kid in their mid twenties. I just thought, I don't know if life gets any better than this. You know, you can take me out now, God, I, I think I, <laughs> I think I've hit the pinnacle. Like it was just a, like I was living, literally living a dream. Well, next you went on to become a vice president of product development at Midway Games. That was yeah. a, a pretty big step up. How did you um, like adapt to that role? Yeah, it's really interesting. So I was, you know, five years at EA and doing that and doing all these great things that I said felt like a dream come true and I can't imagine doing it else, but yet then I did. And the reality of the situation is, is that when you work on a title like Madden and, and, the, and the kind of input and impact that I had, you get headhunted a lot. I would turn down those jobs left and right. Like people didn't even know if you're any good. You're just, you were at EA and EA became this fear, fear company for a lot of people to kind of go cut their teeth or get an education or have a positive association because at the time there were no huge publishers. Like it was EA and Sega and Nintendo and really, you know, not anybody else. I mean, Konami was kind of hit and miss in action and there was a bunch of companies that are no longer kind of around today, but EA was really the kind of this prominent group. And so a lot of people tried to pick people out of EA and there was this weird timing of events. So my wife and I were expecting our first child, a guy named Don Matrick, who ran EA Sports based out of Canada. He was part of the DSI acquisition when EA bought DSI. You know, they had Test Drive, they had a bunch of other games that EA wanted to get into that business. And so and they ultimately became EA Canada and they built the first FIFA on the Genesis, which got, you know, a ton of love and it's like a good group. And so they appointed Matrick in charge of all of EA Sports. And he came to me and said, I want you to do nothing but Matt for the next five years of your life. 24 7 365 and the great thing about ea at the time because games on the genesis not the playstation but on the genesis were so quick to build it was six months of building madden and six months of doing something not mad right so i built tennis games i built you know baseball games i built you know i was part of the hockey team once upon a time so you get this nice creative kind of reset so matrix coming to me saying look i want you to spend the next five years of just owning all things football i have uh, you know, my wife is expecting our first child and I've got this group Midway headquartered at the time out of San Diego saying, look, we're getting our licenses back from Acclaim, which was Mortal Kombat and NBA Jam and all these, you know, Defender and Robotron and, you know, all these great games that I loved as a kid. They said, we're, and we need somebody to come in and build these for the console. Like we're an arcade company. We don't need a console. They said, you know, well, more than double your salary. You'll get to move to San Diego. You can buy a house. Your wife can quit working. Like all these really alluring things that was, and it was the executive role. I said, okay, how long is it going to take for me to become a vice president of EA? Will I even get to become a vice president of EA? You know, how long, how quickly will it take for me to make this much money? And again, the cost of living in San Francisco was way higher than San Diego at the time. Now they're a lot closer, but San Francisco was very expensive relative to San Diego. So uh, they said, look, you get, to meet, you get to meet and work with, you know, all your heroes that built every game you loved as a kid. And it was a lot for me to say no to. And so I didn't. So I took it on. And uh, again, I got to meet those guys and work with those guys and help deliver console versions of all these games that they were building. And it was a really educational, interesting, and fun experience. Well, obviously, one of the jewels in their crown that you got to work on was uh, the Mortal Kombat series. And um, I know the, the executive producer on it, Ultimate Mortal Kombat 3, which um, was an interesting title because that had quite, you know, that altered gameplay system. You had the additional characters, some new features yeah. in there as well. Yeah. So I was quite interested to hear a bit about the kind of background of the development on that. And um, how do you decide which characters to include and balance their abilities and moves? What was kind of the background with, with that? Yeah, before we get into that, a, f- a fun little side story on Ed Boon. So the guy yeah. who did the voice 
for the voice, the, the I'm sorry, the sound and music, and then ultimately the voice for the Super Nintendo version of Madden was a guy named uh, Brian Schmidt. And Brian Schmidt was a sound engineer out of Chicago. Well, the best man at his wedding was Ed Boone. And so the voice of the quarterback every single year in the Super Nintendo version of John Madden football, like the guy who says hut hut and, you know, does the audibles, is voiced by Ed Boone. Oh, wow. <laughs> like literally the creator of Mortal Kombat is the quarterback voice in Super Nintendo Madden because he was the best man to own our contracted sound engineer. It was kind of a funny side story. And That's an amazing bit of trivia. Yeah, <laughs> so Ed and I still kind of joke about that to this day. And Ed Boone and John Tobias both are just, they're really, really, they're, they're gentlemen and they're princes and they are so thoughtful and nice and giving of their time. And so in meeting with Ed, the funny thing about Ed early on and all those guys at Midway was literally the bread and butter of the company was always the coin op. Like that's all they knew how to do. They knew how to build, you know, four minute adrenaline rushes and they didn't know how to build a product that was selling for $60 where players didn't have to put in another quarter. And so there was a lot of educating that we had to do with them in terms of growth and progression and accumulation and additional content. And that's where a lot of those new characters came from. Now, you know, that was Gee, I mean, you know, you're taking me back. That was what, you know, 24 years ago or whatever it was, 25 years ago. And so while I don't understand or remember the addition of, you know, noob cybot versus, you know, smoke versus reptile versus this character versus that character, I will tell you, UMK3, as it relates to like the big deal there, again, as we talked about was, you know, Sony PlayStation wanted exclusive content for a pack-in for the PlayStation, you know, hardware launch and you'd see oh the crash bandicoot you know pack in or the this pack and the ridge racer the tech and the this the that 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 um you know they did a umk3 one and it sold unbelievably well and we couldn't just give them you know mk3 roster they said there has to be things that players can't get anywhere else because the way that you know these hardware manufacturers look at it is what is the reason for a consumer to buy our hardware it's no longer an arms race. We can't say, oh, we, you know, have the highest res textures. We have the most polygons or the most frame rate and most of this, most of that, because there's a lot of parity now between all the different hardware platforms. They all looked great. They all ran really fast. They all did really cool things. So they were going to, there was this whole need to differentiate around, you know, software, you know, availability. And that's why, you know, like the GTA, like four came out, I want to say it was exclusive to the PlayStation for the first year. And that cost Sony a lot of money. But again, that was a huge point of differentiation for their hardware platform relative to Microsoft or Sega or Nintendo at that time. Well, of course, then we had a, you know, Mortal Kombat Trilogy and that added you know, new features like brutality and you got the aggressor bar in there as well. Yeah. So, but obviously it was improving all the time with these new ideas coming along. And how did it kind of affect the gameplay? Because I guess players demanded more advanced games as these new platforms came along. Yeah, you know, it was really interesting, if, you know, with, 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 Trilogy and UMK3 and ultimately what became, you know, MK4 was, it was Virtua Fighter, right? So that was putting a lot of pressure on these 2D games like Street Fighter and MK to figure out, like, it can't be just kind of 2D, kind of, you know, side-scrolling fighters anymore. Like, you have to give an advantage because when Virtua Fighter came out, everybody at Midway was blown away. Like, this is so cool. This is so unbelievable. And, you know, this is where the world is going. And that was with, you know, kind of low poly, you know, flat shaded textures. Imagine what happens once the hardware improves enough where it gets even better. Like we have to, you know, dip our toe or, or have a, have a, an iron in that fire, so to speak. But until we get there, 
we need to do some things that buy us some time or that, you know, continue to feed the audience that we currently have. Because the one thing you don't want to do as a content company, you don't want to kind of take a left turn into 3D from 2D without having anything as a fallback in case you totally miss the mark on the 3D. You're like, oh, wow. And you've abandoned your 2D audience who got you here. So there's a real intent to have this transitional period where you give them content, you give them moves, you give them animations, you give them aesthetic improvements, you give them all these things that keep them engaged while they figure out kind of how do you kind of unlock that, what that 3D experience wants to be. And MK4, as a result, was really delayed and wasn't, you know, super well received because it's a hard thing to do and to get it right. And what you know, I mean, you know, having a 2D fighting game like MK or Street Fighter or Guilty Gears or King of Fighters or any of those things, like that's a much easier game to balance, right? And that's mm. a much easier game to understand power curves and player versus player and character versus character and all that. But once, as soon as you move into that Z space and how does this feel and how do you maintain that rapid like bloodlust that you get in 2D in 3D and make it feel like there's not this visual disorientation like that's a real hard thing to do. I, they've obviously cracked the code and they had, you know, but they had a lot of, you know, they had a lot of bites of that apple, so to speak. And so that's really was quite, kind of what Trilogy was all about was, you know, how do we continue to just put something out there we know people will like, we give them, you know, a little bit more of the same, but it's 10% better or it's 10% more while we figure out what that 3D paradigm wants to be. And obviously, I mean, you know, these were coming out on various platforms that were very different architectures. I mean, you had, you know, it came out on DOS, um, the PlayStation, and the Sega Saturn as well. So yeah. it's quite interesting to hear kind of uh, how did you adapt it to different hardware specs? And I've heard that the Saturn was uh, quite a, a tricky platform to develop for. It was. And I think a lot of things that like, people don't realize is you, you had this with the Saturn, like, it's like, oh, good, cool, it's disc-based. And so we're going to put a bunch of full motion video in there, right? And a bunch of really high-res audio, which is really expensive from a storage standpoint. And, you know, we didn't have Blu-ray discs back then. It was just CDs. And CDs had limited storage. And people filled it up right away. Well, the problem with the Saturn was, you know, the PC, it's no big deal. You have multiple discs. You open them up. You install it on a hard drive. Okay, fine. But with the Saturn, as soon as, if you had a two-disc game and you open the lid... It wouldn't have it would it would lose all your game data, right? Like there was no reset. I mean, there was no uh, there was no uh, car, memory card at the time. There was no internal memory that could save all these things, and so that was a little bit of a design flaw from the Saturn standpoint. Of like, we're going to give you you know storage media that's going to be able to hold a lot of really cool high end stuff, but not a lot of deep gameplay, right? And so they really were at kind of cross purposes of hey, here's a machine that can show incredible visuals and the fidelity was at the time was through the roof. And yet as soon as you need to change discs, everything gets compromised, like everything. And so that was kind of like a, you know, didn't somebody like literally a head scratching moment in the halls of of EA at the time, like, didn't anybody think about this as they were designing this? Like, this doesn't make any sense. The question about, um, you know, is there different kind of architectures that you have to design for? You know, there were. And, you you know, the thing that was really interesting to us was that Nintendo historically, starting with the 8-bit Nintendo and then the 16-bit and then, the you know, the N64, they were always inferior from a hardware standpoint. It was always the least powerful graphics processor, least powerful, you know, main CPU. Like, it was always underpowered because underpowered parts of those hardware systems were cheapest to buy, meaning they could charge the same price but have more margin. And Nintendo, and they were right, always said, we don't need to have blast processing, which is what the Genesis called it. Like, we don't need to have the fastest chipset. We have, you know, Miyamoto-san 
And we can build the best games with what we have, right? So if you look at Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Country, Super Mario, like Zelda, Metroid, Punch-Out, you look at everything that Nintendo ever did, it was a great game, right? And that was always their calling card. We don't need the most powerful hardware because we have the best software designer in the entire history of the world. And they were right. And so when we would build for the SNES versus the Genesis or the, the you know, Saturn versus the N64 or, you know, you know, GameCube, we like it didn't matter. Like we always knew that we had to had to have a separate set of expectations for the Nintendo hardware. And how do we use and the ultimate obviously was the Wii, right? With the just the design of of the Wii mode and all that stuff. Like that was the ultimate. How do we how do we really retro fit an experience into because like, they so want to differentiate themselves, right? They said right. we, we we cannot compete with, you know, Xbox. We cannot compete with Sony. We're going to compete on a whole different kind of level interestingly as well you were uh, doing some consulting work for uh, take two and uh i hear it's a gta free series as well so um how were you involved in that because uh, that was such a revolutionary title when that came out yeah i you know so the, the thing you learn on literally on day one when you get to take two is that it's rockstar and it's everybody else right and Sam Hauser is an absolute genius. And Dan Hauser, his brother, like the, the two of them are the stir that draws the straw that stirs the drink at that company. And they have made that company so much money. They get to do whatever they want and, you know, good for them and God bless them. And Sam is a brilliant, brilliant man. Um, you know, a lot of people, they probably know it, but maybe they don't know it. But, you know, S- Sam Hauser worked for BMG Interactive, the Bertelman's group, right? Bertelman's Music Group. They had an interactive division in uh, in like the late 90s, I want to say. And they launched GTA 1 and GTA 2. And Sam was the producer, I think. Only the producer. He may have been the designer. but He had a much lesser role. I I think he did the uh, mission pack, the London mission (laughs) pack. I remember that was his his one, yeah. Yeah. And so when Grand Theft Auto 3 comes out and Sam, like it wasn't like, oh, of course this comes out from Sam Housen. Of course it's GTA. Like it was just this thing that they tried, right? And it was this unbelievable success. Right? It was such a great idea. It was so well executed. The interesting thing for me, the note that I always take away from that experience was that it was built on renderware, right? It was this you know, muddy textures. It wasn't running at a very fast frame rate. But man, was that so fun to play. And oh my God, was it so cool to explore. And there's this, there's this saying in gaming that uncertainty drives players forward. Like It's a real interesting design kind of trope and uh, there's a guy named Greg Kostikian, who I work with at Plato, who wrote a book called Uncertainty in Game Design. And it talks about why as gamers, why do we do anything? Well, because we're uncertain. Like, oh, now that I've got this sword, what can I kill? Or I'm playing a platform game. What's, you know, what's what's to the right of the screen that I can't see? Or I've leveled up now, what can I do? Like uncertainty is a huge, huge thing because we are a curious species, right? And then when we yeah. die or we get killed or we unlock other things, it continues to reinforce that behavior. And that, so, uh, yeah. That- Sorry, that title was, um, it was one that transitioned from 2D to 3D really well, whereas other titles had struggled. Do you think it it was uh, very special in that way? Well, yeah, because if you look at what GTA 2 was, it wasn't what GTA 3 is in terms of just the overall trope, right? Like GTA 3 was all about, you know, getting money, robbing, stealing, carjacking, questing all those things in gta 1 and 2 weren't were much more humble in their ambitions not because it wasn't open world but because the whole premise was tied to stealing cars opposed to building an empire right you know and the building the empire part 
was the real pivot. Whereas the stealing cars was just a part of that, right? It was a, it, it was one key or one you know codex, if you will. It wasn't the whole point. And so they wrapped this whole idea around what can I do if I give a player a bunch of things that they can do, but the end that justifies the means is how am I building this empire? How am I moving up the ladder? But ultimately, how am I progressing, right? And progression is the other huge thing that you see in gaming today that works, whether it's a idle RPG or it's a sports game or it's, uh, you know, what have you. P- players, we always want to be progressing, right? We want to be moving forward towards a desirable goal. And GTA ha- GTA series has that progression like in space. And it's that's why I think it does so unbelievably well. It, it also... Core. It also had a fantastic uh, marketing that came out with that and design as well. I, I remember when the box came out and it had, you know, the map oh, in yeah. there and all the multiple sections. Yeah. Uh, what was it like when you first kind of saw that stuff coming out? Well, I, I, I tell you what, every single company in the industry at that time said, where's our GTA clone, right? So you looked at, you know, THQ, they had their London uh, London Underground, whatever, it was like developed by Volition, which did Red Faction, you did Summoner, did all these things. You know, EA said, or THQ said, our internal studio has to do this. You know, EA tried to do something. Like, everybody tried to do something similar. But there's this whole notion around anytime you see a genre created in the video game industry, like, it really, really grabs people by the throat and forces them to pay attention. You know, uh, you know, survival horror with Resident Evil, uh, stealthy, stealthy combat, Metal Gear Solid, you know, uh, side-scrolling RPGs, Legend of Zelda. Like, there's these... Uh, you know, Command and Conquer or Dune ultimately first, right? And then Command and Conquer from Westwood Studios was the RTS creator. You know, the action RPG, which is, you know, Diablo. The uh, the action RTS, which was, uh, you know, uh, Warcraft 1, 2, and 3. Like there's these, there's these genre-defining games that come out that really demand your attention. And Grand Theft Auto was probably, you know, the one that had the largest impact because then everything, not, like, everything is now open world. Right. Like it mm. has such a, and in other categories, you know, side scrolling platform games, those are effectively dead. Right. You know, you can say, well, those became infinite runners like, you know, Temple Run or Subway Surfers. But, you know, the impact of the open worldness tied to design, tied to the production value, tied to all those things you mentioned around kind of marketing and, and kind of why you want to do this, the things that Metal Gear Solid did are still impacting the industry today. Right. And I think the most recent kind of genre, creating game was probably you know league of legends around the moba back in 2009 i don't think another kind of brand new genre has come out i mean match three has been around for a long time you can say candy crush but you know match three has been around forever but yeah i mean grand theft auto really was a cultural event that probably won't ever be duplicated again in terms of the impact and and how it's done and how it's still relevant and still appealing today like it really has stood the test of time and very few entertainment properties stand the test of time like the GTA series has. And I think the timing of it as well, coming out around the turn of the millennium, it felt like, you know, this is 21st century gaming now. This is what's coming. It's a great point. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Well, let's talk about, I mean, you mentioned uh, THQ briefly yeah. there. I mean, you actually uh, worked as VP of Worldwide Production at THQ. So how did you end up there then? And what was it like? And what, what kind of projects were you working on? Have you got any memories of that? Yeah, I, I do. You know, so, you know, Midway was a really hard place to work. There was a lot of there was a lot of kind of internal strife and things that they were going through that they didn't again they were an arcade company trying to transition to home and I think that a lot of kind of the executives in Chicago that ran kind of Midway kind of didn't understand the impact of home they just sort of thought well, we'll just keep the arcade business and home the home business will be an afterthought 
I didn't like that. I didn't like kind of feeling not like a second class citizen. I just felt like the things we were doing, I thought was the future of the company. And, you know, people didn't agree with that. So um, we had a guy named Brian Farrell, who was the CEO and chairman at THQ, come to Midway and want to talk to us about licensing, you know, kind of Midway IP to build 8-bit console versions of Mortal Kombat and NBA Jam. I'm like, what are you doing? 8-bit? Like, 8-bit is like eight years ago. Like, right? That's our business model. Like, we take old titles and we bring them out on the platforms because guess what? There's 100 million Nintendo 8-bit systems in the world and nobody supports it. But yet, people still own them. They didn't throw them all away. And so, we built this whole business around kind of supporting dead hardware platforms or perceived dead hardware platforms. And I thought it was a really smart approach and it was a really good idea. And I liked him and I liked his management team. And so, I just reached out to him one day and said, I don't know what you're doing in the home space, but I know you're trying to do things around MAD and you're trying to do things around FIFA and NHL and I used to work at EA. I still know all those people are all still there. I said, I can help you, but I'd love to know kind of what is your plan for growth in the future? Do you want to be a frontline publisher? And I said, and I know you have the WCW license, which I actually love the WCW wrestling games you have, you know, Nitro and, and all that stuff. And he said, yeah, actually, you know, we'd love to talk to you about coming in and, you know, helping us become more of a first party or much more of a kind of a premier publisher. And so kind of long story short, um, you know, they offered me the role to come in and do that. And I did it and it was great and, you know, helped them buy, uh, you know, picked out and helped them buy a Volition Studios, which was a great win for them and a bunch of other studios they, they bought. And, you know, Summoner then became a launch title on PlayStation 1. So here you go from a company building games for the 8-bit Nintendo, you know, kind of eight years past its prime to launching with a, a real a, a real show pony of a title in, you know, Summoner on the PlayStation 1, quickly followed by, uh, you know, Red Faction, which was really... Uh, way ahead of its time and it was a great title and of course then we got the we got there they got the wwf license when it was wwf and transitioned uh you know into the wwf business where i got to you know work with the rock and stone cold steve austin and chris jericho and all those guys and that was you know growing up as a fan of wrestling that was like a dream come true for me as well well, Michael, we could talk to you all morning, but I appreciate that you've got things to do today. Do. You've had such an incredible career and worked on so many incredible titles and fun. companies. I mean, let's just kind of just to wrap things up. What are you working on these days? So I, I'm in uh, I'm in Web3 Gaming, which a lot of people kind of groan and go, oh, NFTs, that's the worst. And Web3, that's the worst. And play to earn, that's the worst. And I would tell you that you're right on some of those things and you're completely wrong on other things. I have... so. I was in, I was at the forefront of the free-to-play movement in 2010. So I saw real real kind of value in giving players the ability to download something free and try it. They want to monetize, they can't. If they don't, they don't have to. And none of the big boys were doing it. You know, I was a company called Playdom, which got bought by Disney for like $700 million a couple of years later, like, and really was building Facebook and mobile games for the free-to-play. Like, I, I got religion around just because the big people aren't doing it doesn't mean it doesn't need to get done. And so the thing that I love about Web3 Gaming is that it's all about player asset ownership and players being able to sell what they've earned or what they've dropped for them or what they've crafted or what they've traded for and selling accounts, selling items, selling, 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 because this is something that's happened in this business for 30 years. And Web3 really allows that to happen in an open and a transparent way. And I will tell you right now that Big publishers don't want you to know about NFTs because it's it's not good for their business. But then again, they don't understand how it can be, but I do. And so I'm trying to build that North Star and show the world what a great kind of Web3 gaming experience looks like where players get to own and do whatever they want with the things that they bought 
Well, Michael, it's awesome to hear that that passion for gaming and you know keeping it at the forefront of the industry still burns strong. So it does. Best of luck with that, and uh, thank you so much for coming on and uh, reminiscing with us this week. It's been wonderful to talk to you, Dan Ravi. Thanks for having me on. I'll come back anytime. Appreciate you. Mm-hmm.